Hello there, welcome to episode 68 of Right Where You Are Sitting Now, the podcast for the website sittingnow.co.uk. Um, and you can find us all over the web, uh, YouTube forward slash C forward slash sitting now. It's not the most, it doesn't roll off the tongue that one. Um, and you can find us on social media generally as sitting now. But uh, yeah, I'm, hit, I'm joined here again this week by Mr. Mark Satir. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. That's M A R C K. Yeah, so C K. There we are. Think about that one. <laughs> it's mystical in, in, in nature. It is. it is indeed. How have you been anyway? Very good. Very good. Yeah. Just just very good. Yeah, it's a very succinct. I can't say it. <laughs> very succinct. There you go. Very succinct. So we have an interesting show this week. Um, with uh, Mr. John E. Graham. Uh, but what are we talking about this week, sir? Well, Ken, a, a sword-bearing warden will escort us into a checkered, a checker-paved room, and uh, we will be uh, introduced into the uh, the presence of uh, a ver- fiercely virginal goddess of wisdom and her zoomorphic totem, the owl, with its... Uh, Amber, sulfurous eyes uh, penetrating the dark, illuminating. And there's a bit of a clue in there. Illuminate. Just you see what I'm doing there. Illuminating, <laughs> illuminating the gloom. There we go. Does that give any idea what we might be, where this podcast might be going? Well, this week we are talking to Mr. Johnny Graham about the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh, so we're not going to be talking about the uh, the Illuminati that to this day rules the world and rah, rah, rah. we're talking about the historical Illuminati the one we know for a fact existed and uh, I'm really looking forward to it um, we've both been sent hefty tomes that's a good word for it absolutely the tomes in the fullest possible sense of the word and, I, and, I'll, and I'll be quite honest when I, when I first set eyes on this uh, formidable book um, and um, I thought my heart sunk a little bit as I thought this is this is going to be quite an onerous task and it's looked quite dry it's 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 written in the in the sort of you know the truly academic sense of the word but um actually I became fascinated with it and I I I became absolutely absorbed into the, the detail it's not for the the flighty kind of character you know the sort of spiritual butterfly in my in my might flip from one thing to another. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a it is a hefty read, a proper read, and a tome. But it's a, you know, is is real meat on the bones there. It's a proper, uh, it's a proper full square meal, you know. And it is a it's a formidable read. But it's it's full of rich minutiae and and uh, and you know, as I, you know, as I, as we will see, it is I believe I believe fully the definitive text on the subject matter. So we should clarify that the the author of this book is actually a man named René Le Forestier. Um, and the book was actually translated by our guest today, John E. Graham. Um, but obviously throughout the process of translation, you hope that he probably knows quite a lot about the topic. He's uh, spent, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I believe he spent quite a long time translating this book. So you would hope that he would have, uh, you know, you would have to, but I mean, it, like I say, it is a very comprehensive work, and um, 
you know, and as you were saying, Ken, this is the historical Bavarian Illuminati. This is this is no, this won't be recognisable to you know the, the fever dreams of the conspiracy. I'm afraid. I mean, yeah. they, they find another podcast. Mind you, if you listen to the same podcast, right, this very same podcast with a with a, a tinfoil hat on, you you'll hear something completely different. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, all about sort of. Trans, you know, sort of lizard queens from some, you know, from Alpha Centauri or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> that's probably got more to do with your own personal sort of psychological issues. <laughs> I think. I mean, for the um, you know the occult connoisseur in 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 our listener group to give you a a sort of visual representation of how big this book is, if you took. Uh, Alistair Crowley's book for the big blue book as everyone refers yeah. to it it's similar in size to that so it is a big book but it's like Mark says it is actually really really fascinating and uh, it, you, you sort of hit, dive into it and you think oh god this might actually be a bit of a slog but actually once you start you know getting into it it's actually really fascinating especially if you're if you're a fan of you know the history of the occult especially this is uh, exactly, yeah. especially yeah. the western esoteric you know yeah. occultism this you really see some some interesting building blocks being well, formed here. Some actual genuine history. I mean, that mm. sometimes helps, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. trying to make trying to make sense of the world. Mm. I mean, it's just an, it's just. I mean, it's a wild suggestion, but I, I, I pull it out there. <laughs> you can you might want to try that on occasion. But there we go. You know, I might be completely wrong about that. Of course, it might actually change the minds of some conspiracy theorists. I don't know. It might be. Uh, you know. They might go, oh, God, we've been getting it wrong all these years, and here's the actual truth. You know, you never know. I doubt it, but, you know. I mean, alternatively, we, we could be completely wrong. I get things wrong. I get things wrong, and that's perfectly fine. No. You know, I know it's hard to imagine, <laughs> but I, I, I do get things wrong, and that's fine. That's how I learn. That's how I learn, and, yeah, exactly. and, and that's how I welcome those experiences. And, uh, you know, we, we cater for the more sophisticated eyebrow end of the occult <laughs> The occult world. Yeah. We're not, you know. This is this is what this, you know, and this is what we're. <laughs> this is what this is, uh, you know. We're keeping up the standards here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, let's roll on to our guest, uh, John E. Graham. Hello, John E. Graham. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? All right, I'll try to keep it short. I mean, I'm now the uh, acquisitions editor at Inner Traditions Bearing Company, a position I've held for over 25 years. Before that, I've had a wide array of uh, jobs, uh, factory worker, bike messenger, bookseller, chef, uh, circus worker, (laughs) many different things, but what uh, drew me to this job and uh, has been a constant throughout my life has been an interest in the occult and uh, uh, not just the occult, but just life on the margins, life on the fringes, uh, where I think the creative ferment of society really uh, uh, exists in a kind of... uh, constant uh bubbling and uh you know also an artist and a translator uh writer i worked with the surrealists in new york and paris uh have friends in the surrealist 
communities around the world. Oh, interesting. I totally agree with, um, there is something about the fringes and, uh, I mean, this whole website is dedicated to that kind of, uh, you know, counterculture, subculture or culture, that kind of thing. It's, uh, it definitely has, it's, it's kind of where the more interesting side of the art world exists, I think, or at least where it spawns from most of the time. No, I think this is where it draws its real strength. And then things tend to fall apart when, uh, they start, uh, you know, remolding themselves to, uh, to repeat what was successful or to, uh, to uh, satisfy the needs of people in the mainstream. Mm, yeah, definitely. I, I think you see that in secret societies anyway, when they forget the ideas that brought them together and, and the focus becomes, you know, membership drives. Yeah. I mean, that's... And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not that much different than, uh, you know, public, uh, media institutions yeah exactly we were talking to mark stavish he wrote a book recently that you guys pu uh, published actually um the path for freemasonry and he, he yeah he, he spoke about how um the free you know he wrote the book because freemasons themselves just don't even know that about their uh their kind of more esoteric side um you know because it's just been sort of rolled out or you know like ham hammered out of the systems of freemasonry yet it's such a fundamental part of, of their origins <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. So how did you um, come to translate this book? I hear that Mr. James Wasserman may have had some kind of uh, part part to play. In that it. is precisely who uh, cajoled me into translating it. Uh, it was years ago. I mean, I think it was 15, 16 years ago. And I ran into him. Well, I mean, I had an appointment with him. I always used to see him when he came to New York for the book expo. And he mentioned that he had this great book on the Illuminati that he could barely read because he didn't speak French well enough, but he understood that uh, from the author's reputation that it had to be the real deal. And he had some ideas about getting it published. He thought it was in the public domain. It turned out that it wasn't yet. It is now. Uh, and he sweet talked me into like helping him out, which involved taking a lot of time and took me about a year and a half or so to get the first draft done. And uh, his plans never materialized. He had a lot of different uh, things going on all the time, but that was one of his, uh, I mean, in, in his very last book on the assassins, he talked another friend of his into translating some obscure uh, Ismail doctrine out of Arabic and he built the book around it and that was you know one of his uh, key features as an author was to bring in these source texts that had never been available before and he had an idea of that sort concerning this book but it was a lot of work <laughs> and, and and did Mr. Wasserman did he see the uh, the the fruits of your labor did he did he get to see did he was he passed away not that long ago did he get to see them? no unfortunately he didn't see the finished product as it just came out but he did know that i was doing it and uh he was happy that all that labor hadn't gone for nothing it's a very impressive tome i mean it, i mean it's a tome in the true sense of the word isn't it it's quite oh yeah it seems quite formidable when i when i was starting to read it it was it's quite a formidable and and uh you know 
book is quite a, a thing to take on, and it uh, and actually, I, I, I thought oh, I, I thought it would be a bit onerous actually, but actually, when I got into it, I, I actually can pull it down. It was it was quite utterly fascinating. I felt. Yeah, it's very it's very readable. Uh, the author has a really interesting way of uh, pulling together these psychological thumbnail portraits of the key people. And, you know, you can see that the human element in the Illuminati is never absent. It's not dry at all. And you can... Go on, sorry. Oh, and there's, there's, you know, the the material that he was able to to find and, you know, all the different uh, documents from the order, you know, with all their great information and their ceremonies and rituals. It's fascinating. And is there, I mean, as I read on, I, I also became more intrigued about the, the original writer. I mean, is there anything about uh, the original French writer that we, you know, do we know a great deal about him? Um, that is actually one of my, it's a, it's a puzzle to me. Uh, he is known in France for writing this book, but it also books uh, like it, large tomes, paving stones, as they would be called there. Uh, that exhaustively document the activities of other occult groups. He does uh, several books on different uh, groups of esoteric uh, groups in Freemasonry. He does uh, the elect Cohen and Martinism, which is something that is still not too well known in the English-speaking world. I writes about Rosicrucians and Early on, I was looking online to see if I could find anything about him, but there was a painter with the same name that seems to have usurped all the bandwidth. Uh, and I've talked to some of the French publishers I knew that specialize in this, and they really didn't have a lot to say about him, except that he was uh, a formidable scholar and put together these books that would that were absolutely indispensable to anybody who had a serious interest in the subject yes um, i looked up one there seems to be like one other book um that i managed to uh, translate the name it was the templar and and occultist templar freemasonry <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, i'm not sure if that was just this book under a different name or if that was a a, a separate book no that's a totally separate book what i mean he probably considered he was just uh, giving a brief outline in the in the second volume of this book, where he talks about uh, the Templar Freemasonry as it appears in the uh, strict observance. Uh, but he was be- really just showing the context of secret societies and the interest in the occult that was occurring in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, which became Germany at that time, the late uh, mid to late 18th century. And I'm sure that he could have done, um, he just probably went ahead and did a whole book on that, plus all their related uh, organizations. The Templar Freemasons in Germany had a relationship with the Martinists. Uh, Villermotz in Lyon, who had several uh, lodges based on, I think, the Martinism of uh, Martinez de Pasquale, and he created the Order of Elect Cohen, which later became 
the basis for another school of Martinism and then a third school of Martinism with Papus and the uh, French occult revival in the late 19th century. So there's a there's a, a non that's a, it's a bottomless reservoir, I think. In fact, when I first went to France and was looking for occult books, I realized that it was a complete gold mine. If any publisher would want to put invest significant resources into translating things, because there's so much there that is pertinent to people with an interest in the occult today, but uh, none of it, very little of it has been translated into English. And what's kind of interesting is uh, allegedly in France, it's actually um, illegal or against, you know, against, I guess illegal, yeah, uh, to to form a secret society or be a member of a secret society, I believe. Well, yeah, there's this law against cults. Mm. Uh, I'm only aware of it uh, from... Somebody else that we translated a book by uh, Vincent Ravalek, who is a kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say punk writer, but out of that thing. And he uh, wrote a book about Iboga, and which is uh, this hallucinogenic substance that's used in what's now Gabon, I think the Fong people, other tribes in that area of equatorial africa and it's supposed to be a very intense uh, experience that basically unravels your personality and takes you back to your deepest ancestral roots and then with the help of the shaman you're put back together in a way that is better and stronger than before and in touch with your ancestors and it has, it's been used in the Western world as Ibogaine, which is uh, considered to be one of the uh, best medications or for, for treating addiction, for getting rid of addictive behavior. But it doesn't, it's never achieved the success of ayahuasca or anything like that. But his teacher, Mayende, was living in France and was for a while uh, arrested on charges of forming a cult, which wasn't the case. And he was eventually uh, acquitted and released and went on. But uh, I have friends that teach yoga, but they can't make money at it. Otherwise, they're running a cult. <laughs> I mean, uh, France, I mean... It, I, yeah, maybe, France, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might be... I mean, during the French Revolution, I mean, it's one of the few countries that made Christianity illegal, so... I mean, in the terms of like people's sort of religious worldviews, it sort of it definitely wants to separate the state from for good or for good or bad, or right. sometimes for bad in this case. But, uh, <laughs> maybe it's going a bit too far. The other yeah, extreme. I think it's a bit over the top, but yes, yes, I mean, put it mildly. Yeah, <laughs> the pendulum is swinging a bit too far. Into the... Yeah, yeah. So, um, before we get into how how would you like to pronounce the. Uh, the leader of the Illuminati's name, or the founder, I should say, of the Illuminati's name. Because I've oh, heard... Adam Weishaupt? Weishaupt, okay, right. Because I've heard about five different <laughs> pronunciations of that name. Um, I just wanted to make sure we we uh, landed on the correct one. So could you paint a picture of the kind of, I guess, the sort of social environment that he uh, grew up in and kind of, uh, kind of uh, what it was that kind of <clears throat> sprung him into action, as it were, with the... Illuminati, but I mean, who is he? Where did he grow up? What was going on around him, kind of thing? Well, Adam Weishaupt grew up in Bavaria, which 
was the most backwards part of Germany, the Enlightenment that had been triggered by the by Martin Luther and Calvinism and other Protestant sects that had transformed the rest of Germany, had missed Bavaria by design. One of their earlier elector counts had decided to uh, seal Bavaria off from the pernicious influences of the Reformation. And I, I guess you could say turn it into a, a predecessor of North Korea in the Middle Ages. And at the time Weishaupt was growing up, it was still a very Catholic country. It had, it had been uh, firmly controlled by the Jesuits. And even though the Jesuit order had been temporarily disbanded by the Pope at this time, the Jesuits still maintained their control over uh, the educational institutions and uh, most of the more influential positions in the Bavarian administration. The elector had a had a confessor that was his chief uh, advisor. And Weishaupt went to a Jesuit school and his dislike, maybe even hatred of the Jesuits, really influenced his political ambitions, his uh, desires to, to uh, fight superstition and the oppression of the church and the monarchy so that humans, the individuals could find happiness in being allowed to grow and mature along their own lines. I mean, these are standard enlightenment values. At the time, uh, they were considered fairly radical and there was a lot of pushback, uh, even, or maybe even especially in the occult milieu where the Rosicrucians and the Templar Freemasons uh, were very much beholden to the idea of monarchy as a, uh, factor in the natural order of things. And when Weishaupt began to teach, he got a position at Ingolstadt, which was a Jesuit university, but had been under the uh, guidance of a more liberal individual. And Weishaupt began his professorship there as a spokesman for the enlightenment values that were prominent throughout the rest of Germany. And he was trying to get books in, books that were technically not uh, legal to share in Bavaria or books that were frowned upon by the, by the establishment. So there was a lot of uh, Tencent and jockeying for power between Weishaupt and the old Jesuit guard. And a lot of the uh, original impetus for the order was born in his struggle with the Jesuits at the college, at the university. That's interesting. So do we know much about his own kind of background as well, like, you know, socioeconomic background, or is that still fairly mysterious? Uh, well, he was, I mean, this is, this is, uh, 
he wasn't nobility, but he was, you know, minor. He was a middle class, uh, educated. He was, you know, there was still, at this time, it was still the, the, the tripartite system was still in effect in all the Catholic countries, which was monarchy, church, and everybody else. And the merchant class had achieved uh, some greater degree of mobility and uh, power, but the church and the monarchy still reserved uh, veto power over anything that went on in the countries they controlled. I don't know anything about his own. Uh, I can't recall. If, I, I don't recall that uh, Le Forestier delved into that. He looked more at the political motivations and the Enlightenment principles that moved Weishaupt in his creation of the order. And and his involvement with education because he had he, he sort of focused a lot of interest on on students didn't he so he, they they he wanted people to be open to new ideas and also to have a certain degree well certainly have um <laughs> be educated oh precisely and I mean, in fact that was one of the uh, key aspects of the order and you see that mentioned in the uh, questionnaire the uh, questions that were asked of the uh, initiates when they were invited to move on to a higher grade and it would talk about the uh, greater education they would receive at this next level uh i mean there's a pedagogical uh dynamic throughout the illuminati order that starts with the reading list that the novitiates were given uh it's reflected in the classical greek and latin influences that uh shaped the order not only the aeropagus is the was the leadership which is named after the uh hill of mars in ancient athens that was a site for uh a certain elite to deliberate uh there's the the names they took on Weishaupt called himself spartacus that was his name in the order uh Kinigi, who was later one of the most more important uh members who was responsible for to a large extent for the orders movement into the rest of germany and elsewhere was philo there was a you know uh weishaupt's longest uh, associate uh von zwack was cato and so on and so forth most of them are classical greek and roman which reflects the same interest of you know the founding fathers in the united states thomas jefferson and people like that with who are citing Euripides and the Stoics as part of their uh, as substantiating the principles that they were using to argue on behalf of uh, removing removing themselves from under the tutelage of the crown of England. Yeah, and I was really struck by um, the vice uh, sort of drawing deep on the wells of classicism there with, uh, you know, he, he, um, he referenced explicitly the uh, what what little they knew about the, um, what little we know about the the rights of Elysius and uh, and uh, the the um, password, or the original password uh, anyways, of the, of the Illuminati was based on the 
away from here or ye profane which was uh, opened opened those particular ancient greek mysteries and uh, and the names one of the things that struck me as well like spartacus spartacus says something about the ethos of yeah that he was sort of um aspiring to spartacus is like a liberated slave very famous very famously i am spartacus you know from the uh, exactly. famous film which most people will be aware of i mean it's used uh, and it comes up props up in other places there used to be in the uk in the 60s there used to be a spartacus press that some people might be aware of oh yeah i remember them yeah yeah and, and uh so he had those, um, yeah, those sort of interests, didn't he? So, and uh, and also, the, when I was reading the book, uh, and you have uh, these names that the people were, um, I thought the first they were they were adopting, but it, the advice I was actually uh, sort of giving them these title, these names from the classical world and and that's in, in itself really revealing because it's like you have like Raymond Lully the famous alchemist and Hermes Trimagistrus mm-hmm. and um, and also Saladin and and uh, even Confucius is <laughs> even yes, a Confucius yes. so so that really that was really striking how he um, he was uh, specifically kind of um, it, do, it does say something about the flavor the flavor he was trying to sort of uh, create there mm-hmm. no I think he was really trying to uh open up a you know offer a crash course in uh an education in world philosophy so that the people that became members of the order would be able to uh i mean he, he in the order statutes itself it says that the knowledge has to be absorbed uh proportionately to uh one's self-knowledge and there was a lot of emphasis placed on developing your powers of observation of yourself and of others and that starts right at the beginning where the kibis liset and other uh internal documents were uh asked of the initiates so that they would write a portrait of themselves and they would have to re- write a new portrait of themselves every time they raised or were elevated to uh a new rank within the order and the 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 novices, the ones in the nursery, the first uh, level, would be instructed to write portraits of all the people that they were peers of, just as a way to develop their uh, ability to to uh, discern and to to see beyond the conventional, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so before we sort of delve into the Illuminati, it seems like third time's a charm when it he comes to naming things because uh, he uh, um, obviously the Illuminati was the kind of uh, in some ways the third name he kind of came up with. Uh, before that was the uh, Perfectibilist, and then right. also the B Order. Can we can we talk a little bit about this kind of like proto Illuminati uh, um, orders or you know this sort of groups that he sort of formed prior to the Illuminati? Well, the perfectibilist is really uh, an excellent description of his goals. What the overarching purpose of the order was, was to give individuals a safe space within a world suffering under the oppression of uh, priests and corrupt aristocracy to be able to develop their and educate themselves into the mature individuals that could be responsible for their unhappiness 
and would it was, it was again you find the pedagogical instinct that in Weishaupt's view and the uh, in the view of the Illuminati church and state kept its citizens in a kind of state of perpetual childhood and the Illuminati were looking to give them the means that they could grow into adults and take responsibility for their lives and their happiness into their own hands and this of course is also you find this in in a lot of the other uh, political movements of that time and, and what about the b order that seems like an interesting name as well yeah well the b order i mean the bees are always been there's a you know the the rosicrucian uh the b as an alchemist the apis meliflora and then as the bees for Weishaupt, it's also the kind of industriousness that is its own is not only its own reward but creates honey which creates the the people that the bees while doing while being industrious would create an order that would reward each member individually as well as all of them with the the success of their efforts would make it possible for the members to find well better positions I the term job isn't quite appropriate but if you were to put it on a, a modern terminology it was like you would find jobs and keep it that would reward you to the way you needed to be rewarded that the each member would be able to use their personal knowledge of things to benefit all the other members and so you have that idea of the hive providing for the growth and sustenance of everybody in it but it's probably be sounded too collective to him and the illuminati uh probably reflected more truthfully the his faith that knowledge as a light would free people i think also he, he when he was sort of at this sort of stage in of things he was sort of groping around with the another idea was um the sort of gebers the the persian zoroastrian fire worshippers and that obviously does relate more explicitly with the idea of illumination and mm -hmm. but again i suppose this is all before it really sort of coalesced around the, 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 the central ethos of uh, the illuminati for him and that came a bit later didn't it mm -hmm. yeah so let's talk about the name the uh, illuminati where does it come from like where where did he you know where where did he find it you know and uh yeah, and how does it relate to you know the the order that we we all know and love? Well, when he first started, it was the perfectibilist at, at Ingolstadt, and his own uh, attempts to f join other secret societies were disappointing, and he felt that they weren't illuminated. And one of the uh features that he wished the order of the illuminati to have was that their knowledge would be real and it would be illuminating and that anybody that became members of that would soon realize that what they were uh 
teaching their members, what they were sharing with their members was the result of great spiritual truth that had illuminated uh, humanity for centuries, rather than the uh, superstitious uh, or charlatan-like promises made by the other orders. There's a real, uh, there's real emphasis on masonry, for example, and the Illuminati viewpoint as a inferior order, but one that would attract people genuinely attracted to being illuminated, but they would be disappointed. And using that disappointment, the Illuminati could draw those people into its own ranks. Hmm. Interesting. So and there's a connection with Minerva as well, I believe, isn't there, with um, the name? Oh, yeah. Well, that was definitely the uh, – in the the not the well the the first degrees there's the novice and then there's the minerval and then there's the illuminated minerval and then it uh, becomes the uh, illuminatus major after uh, a period in which the member would go through the masonic grades and the master mason was the equivalent of the Illuminatus Major. Ah, that's and, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. I'm like, yeah, because I was struck by that. I think, uh, was it the Illuminated um, Minerva that he equated with the, the Master? Or that came well, it was the Illuminated one came before. And this is, you know, this, this uh, system was created mainly by uh, Baron Adolf Carnegie. Yes, um, yeah. using the notebooks that Weishaupt had never been able to finish. Weishaupt was really uh, good at getting things started, but he did not have the extensive knowledge of secret societies that Carnegie did because he'd been members of a number of them. And Carnegie drew on his Masonic background to rewrite a lot of the uh, grades that Weishaupt did had outlined and then to create the upper grades that Weishaupt only had you know sketched out so why do you think um and you know why why do you think Weishaupt um added a mystical element to the Illuminati uh well where was he was this something that kind of interested him prior or did he just feel that a secret society should have a mystical element or you know I think, yeah, I think it was more of a uh, uh, manipulative thing. He, he saw that the people drawn to the other secret societies were drawn by uh, the mystical teachings that each society promised its members. And I think Weishaupt himself, especially because of his... Uh, Dis, his disdain for the Jesuits and for what he called superstition was probably not really enamored of that. And in fact, one of the higher grades in the priesthood is set aside for those members that are really taken with the mystical aspects. And it basically was used as a kind of uh, uh, place to put them 
as to keep them out to keep them from making trouble with the uh, directing of the order itself that the regent's grade was where his interest was in the administration of the order itself and eventually in the administration of the people it had placed in various positions of influence or power throughout the uh i mean in the bavarian government bavarian courts bavarian educational system the illuminati did managed to uh, take a large number of positions. It's not the same. There's no evidence that that happened elsewhere in what's now Germany. Yeah, interesting. So what what is the kind of um, recruitment sort of structure of, of the Illuminati back then? Is it, uh, it I mean, early days, like how, how did he start to kind of, um, you know, entice members to join? Well, he started with... Uh, I think that started with five members on May 1st, 1776. And these were people that these were colleagues or students. And he uh, urged them to then bring the best of their friends into the order, who would then be ordered, you know, urged to bring the best people they knew into the order. So it would be a word of mouth type of thing. There was no... Uh, there's nothing independent of the members of the order for, for drawing people in. They had no uh, publishing arm. They had no, there's no booksellers working with them, which is the chief means of spreading propaganda or recruitment uh, tactics in that era. And books were, so yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. So he was just basically using, you know, I mean, his, early correspondence he's always uh belaboring his membership for not bringing in enough new members yeah. and, and books were like uh, sort of vital to that i mean i mean they well it's emphasized in the um in the book itself that uh, you know the 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 vice was very keen to sort of um engender a, a library for the order and and uh, you know, it's it's interesting how they were far more precious, deemed far more precious, and uh, uh, that kind of edu that paper education at the time, having access to it, and including things like chemistry and so on, doesn't it? They they tried to mm -hmm. they tried to uh, get uh, develop also you know a, a library, a an encyclopedic library, you know, which was comprehensive of all the sort of parts of of science and 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 history and. And they think anthropology, as we would call it now, and so on. Now, now there, his uh, request for members included getting people with expertise in different disciplines that could then bring that into the order, and the order would, as a whole, would be enriched by that knowledge. Yeah. So, um, so how did the kind of order work, kind of organisationally speaking, like? Um, you know, if you you have like say Freemasonry or you know other kind of more esoteric orders that they they tend to meet at certain times or you know there there's a there's a newsletter <laughs> or something like that. You know, uh, how does it? How did the Illuminati meet and how how did that kind of structure work? Well, initially, uh, Weishaupt would they had uh, commandos set up like in Munich and other uh, cities in that era, Ingolstadt. And, you know, they were also given Greek names. Munich was Athens. I believe Ingolstadt was Eleusis. 
and so on and so forth. But uh, Weishaupt's main instrument was correspondence, uh, which is one of the reasons that this book is so substantive is that a lot of that correspondence survived and was uh, take it was uh, was uh, confiscated by the Bavarian police at one time years later. But uh, yeah, his his correspondence with his uh, colleagues in Munich, he's always basically frustrated that they're not doing enough. Uh, meanwhile, in, in Ingolstadt, there are a few new members were being brought in and there are other centers. I think there were four uh, Illuminati centers at that time. But uh, Weishaupt betrays a lot of frustration with his, uh, with his colleagues, with his members for not doing enough. And Massenhausen, who was one of the very first ones, didn't last long because as soon as he was in Munich out of uh, Weishaupt supervision, he basically uh, did nothing. <laughs> so... Talk us through the degree system a little bit more. We sort of touched on it earlier. Um, uh, how many degrees were there? And there, there, later there was a kind of reformation of the degree system, wasn't there? Well, when Weishaupt did it, he basically had he had planned for you know a large number of degrees, similar to what uh, you find in Scots Rite Masonry, where there's 33 degrees. Uh, the Illuminati did not have that many. When after uh, Baron Kanigi uh, worked on it, you had the first class, which had the nursery. Uh, it was divided into the novitiate, the minerval, the illuminatus minor. And then the final grade was the consecration, which prepared them for, move, for uh, transition into the second class, which was based on Freemasonry. And this was a strategic choice of the Illuminati at that time because they wanted their members to be fully versed in Freemasonry so that they would be able to uh, explain in depth why the Illuminati system was superior to what Freemasons were being offered at that time. So once they reached Master Mason, uh, they would still be in that second class but it was in the Scottish degree. So you had your Illuminati major or novice Scotsman. And then there was the uh, Illuminati dirigents, it's the directorship or Scottish knight. And the third class was the mysteries, which had the lesser mysteries of the priest and prince, and then the greater mysteries of the magus and the king. And the later... The later grades were never uh, completed with as much detail as the lesser ones. It's kind of interesting how some of the rituals, when you read in the book, seem to have um, have been picked up by later groups as well, um, especially some of the names. If you look at groups like the OTO, there's a Minerval degree and... Uh, I wonder. Do you think there's there's? I mean, the ATO claim to have a connection with 
the Illuminati. Um, but do you th- do you see a clear link there between the the degree systems? Oh yeah, I think you know this is this is a real he- it's a real helpful template for creating a system, and you know that that. I mean, I've I've seen it in in a, in a lot of different uh, guild or secret society structures, where the same you know you're you're creating a a sacred space, a sense of awe for the person coming into the new grade, and there's a lot of uh, pomp and panoply that's impresses upon the new member, you know, the the grandeur of the state into which they're about to embark. Was, and it's filled with, you know, symbols. And, you know, I believe symbols are like the D- cultural DNA of, of, you know, humanity. Yeah. And they, they sort of mimic uh, sort of uh, um, themes, uh, it, it seems, uh, which are in the Illuminati, the very early Illuminati. I mean, it's interesting but with the, the uh, Minerva degree and the the disciple of Minerva, he, he, he's called as well. You know, you have uh, sort of elements which seem to have sort of trickled down into other things. I mean, in um, from what I understand, anyway, is in the sort of Gardarian. I mean, it's a it seems sort of quite a remove, but in in the sort of Gardarian sort of Wicca, there's the the being challenged by the sword, which uh, I believe takes place. Um, uh, th- that that there's an element of that in the, this very this sort of very proto. I mean, the the, the Minerva degree itself there was was first formulated in 1779, I think. And then right. uh, it's in, it's sort of fascinating how it sort of it's in a, it's in a, like that cultural sort of um, meme is still alive and well, and you can sort of trace its ancestry <laughs> all the way back to Bavaria. I mean, that's that's absolutely that's, that's intriguing. No, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. This is this this uh, what the Illuminati left behind is very serviceable for other groups seeking to uh, you know create a similar system, but based on you know their own principles. And you know the Minerva thing. It also you know again Minerva is symbolized by the owl which plays a large part in uh illuminati symbolism and that is you know age-old symbol for wisdom which again you see is you know emphasizes what the illuminati thought were really was truly important yeah it's on the emblem isn't it there's a an owl uh, perched on an open book, and, and yeah. there's another one flying through a starry firmament, or something like that. They, you know, within a, um, you know, the uh, the victory, the the victory reeves. Right. And interestingly, there was, I don't know if you may have seen it. There was a TV show um, in the, I think it was the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, called Millennium. Do you remember that? Uh, it had Lance Henriksen was the main actor in it. But there was the Millennium Group in it, interestingly, who are kind of presented as a Illuminati-esque uh, group. They have the symbol of the owl in an Ouroboros. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting how that kind of, you know, how the kind of Illuminati symbology has kind of lasted all these mm-hmm. years. And it's still being oh, yeah. Yeah, repurposed and used. And it's fascinating. Well, to go back to, you know, you mentioned Mark Davis earlier. Uh, we published another book by Mark called egregores and i think the illuminati 
legend is a perfect example of an egregore, oh, something yeah. that a thought form that is larger than the sum of its creative parts, you know, what created it. Mm, yeah. And if you're interested in that subject, I can highly recommend there's a, there's another one on this site, which uh, you might be interested in where we, we explore with Mr. Stavish, uh, his book on egregores. But yeah. <laughs> advertising, oh, yeah. Advertising my own <laughs> within, within the, the, the program itself. <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, I mean, his, his methods for recruitment started to become a little bit, um, uh, yeah, creative. That's, uh, that's one way of putting it. Um, and in particular in the way he utilized women, um, and that was one part of the book where I was like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. He, he, um, he used to tactically use women, shall we say to recruit members, didn't he at one point? Well, man, it doesn't, it's not surprising when one of the things he reproached one of the things that he was losing members for is that they were chasing women all the time. So I think he just decided to turn the tables on them. And if they're going to chase women, they'd have to do it within the uh, confines of the order. But, you know, he was also, you know, the order uh, was fairly, was very egalitarian for its time and was, you know, speaking for uh, equality for, for, for women, which was one of the uh, uh, main bones of contention with a lot of the more conservative orders that saw this as uh, completely uh, subversive and destructive of, of the natural order of things. So, I mean, in terms of the Illuminati sort of philosophy, there, there does seem to be a a sort of almost like a tipping point where Weishap sort of seems to think that it's almost like, it's almost it's like it sort of reverses and he becomes the uh the, the thing he kind of despises or despises originally anyway where it, it, it almost seems his philosophy is very much his way or the highway like you know what they are teaching is is the correct way and um you know everything else is wrong which seems to be kind of the very thing he was initially kicking back against at one point. Um, oh, exactly. Yeah. No, you're totally right. I mean, there's a, you know, he's, he's preaching, uh, I mean, they're commendable values. Uh, but at the same time, he's very much an autocrat. And he's his own worst enemy when he does this. I mean, it's uh, his uh, dictatorial tendencies that cause most of the problems that would later uh, lead to the fall of the order. And and Baron uh, Knig, I mean, I think he accuses um, Weishaupt of becoming, you know, too much the the son of the the Jesuits, and uh, it's very much a case of, as a sort of Nietzsche would say, you know, be aware when you fight monsters, and you should become a monster yourself. Exactly. He's, no, uh, and Knig was was a very different. Uh, kind of person. And he was also reflective of the Germany outside of Bavaria. And a lot of what, I mean, one of the things that held the growth of the order back in the rest of Germany was the fact that the books that Weishaupt thought were so revolutionary and necessary were, you know, long accepted parts of the Canaan in Frankfurt or Weimar or wherever. And Carnegie 
was an aristocrat. He was cosmopolitan. He was witty. And he had a lot of connections and people liked him. And it was his uh, impetus that really uh, took Weishaupt's order and gave it wings. I mean, he really, he, you know, I, I don't think there's any question that his activity expanded the order far beyond Bavaria. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Carnegie. I was actually like really relieved to hear that that pronunciation of his name because we we uh, um, came across a different pronunciation which sounded like a cross between my name and a racial slur uh, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so i'm quite pleased to uh, to hear it pronounced that way no and there's a funny thing about Kinnigi is he wrote this book on how to be a better human but somehow over time uh he became like He's known in Germany. It's like a, as a you know his name Kinnigi is a shorthand for uh, knowing the right thing to do in the right situation. Uh, the Emily Post or Miss Manners of uh, 18th century uh, German speaking world. Yeah, that, like etiquette, yeah, that, isn't it? It's like etiquette. Uh, yeah, ex exactly etiquette. And that's not what he wrote at all. But somehow, over time, his name expanded to to encompass uh, all these rules for courtesy and etiquette that's still known today. Um, a friend of mine tells me that, you know, if you're excessively polite in certain, Germ you know, more uh, relaxed German society, they'll say, oh, you're really, you really know you're Carnegie. <laughs> so his social, his social skills it suggests that his social skills are quite, you know, well sharpened, and uh, right. they probably would have great another another um, equivalent to his bow there in 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 formulating the the uh, staying the staying power of the Illuminati. I mean, I get the impression as we were talking about that very earlier period, that sort of most proto period of uh, vice ups the illuminati is almost it's almost like a, a sphinx without a secret and but it's when um Carnegie comes onto the scene that's when it sort of really sort of form it really crystallizes well he was you know he was he was a known quantity in the in the world of uh secret societies of germany which at that time is really the aristocracy the strict observance which is the order that dominated uh freemasonry for a time in germany was the was the grandmaster baron von hund it had some of the most the highest ranking aristocrats of uh of various principalities and electorates throughout germany as members and Carnegie had had uh an idea of creating a bond between the Illuminati and strict observance, which they, which they rejected. And he was also very uh, familiar with, with the Masonic scene throughout Germany. So he was, was far more worldly than, than Weishaupt and was able to like take what Weishaupt had created and expand it and shape it in a way that that made it attractive to the people that would were drawn to secret societies at that time and and did he have links with like so figures like Cagalistro and did he, did he... 
Well, he was a he was rumored to do that. I mean, this is all part of the you know the legend that formed about the Illuminati after the French Revolution. Uh, he would have, I mean, at the end of his life, he was uh, under investigation by the Viennese secret police because he was a ardent supporter of the French Revolution and was like. Uh, it gave him a, a desire to, re, to to rejoin that world of the Illuminati that didn't exist anymore, but to go back to it. After he left the order, he was uh, an ardent foe of secret societies, but at the end of his life, he had come back around and the Viennese police had set a trap for him, they'd uh, they turned a former Vienna Illuminati member into an informer who was writing him letters and encouraging him to incriminate himself so that uh, they would be able to arrest him when he came to Vienna to, to, to meet all the people eager to join a, uh, a renewal of the Illuminati. So, I mean, we we just mentioned Cagliostro. Like, how does Cagliostro kind of fit into the Illuminati story? It seems to be this is kind of one of the we were talking earlier about, you know, before the interview about how uh, kind of modern conspiracy theories kind of hijacked. Well, it isn't even modern conspiracy theory; it's just always been hijacked, isn't it? The the, the Illuminati myth or legend, but Cagliostro is the one that always seems to, um, you know, when you see people talking about these are kind of conspiracy theorists anyway, talking about the history of um, the Illuminati, Cagliostro is the link they always make. Um, so could you talk to that and talk to what it is supposedly that uh, Cagliostro kind of did? I mean, well, yeah, of course. No, that's, that's because he was in France. He was actually in the Bastille for some time. Uh, the, not for occult activities, but for some, uh, scam that somebody else was trying to pull involving a necklace that was supposed to go to uh, uh, Marie Antoinette, but she didn't want. And it's a long, twisted story. But Cagliostro, who is also who is well known for being a uh, a con man, uh, he and his wife, uh, who is much younger than he, uh, used to were known to the authorities at that time as playing the badger game where his wife would allow herself to be seduced by some uh, wealthy gentleman. And then uh, Cagliostro would interrupt them in the middle and force the, uh, force the man to uh, pay them off or be blackmailed. And Cagliostro got out of the Bastille and he was furious and he wrote this uh, tract about how France was the uh, tyrant above all tyrants and it was time for the people to revolt. And, you know, it was a very, it was a text full of enlightened uh, precepts, very much something that you would find uh, palatable to the Illuminati. And it probably would have rested there, but he made the mistake of returning to Italy, where as a Freemason, uh, he could be uh, sentenced to death, which the Vatican picked him up and 
sentenced him to death, but then he confessed to being a member of one of the 12 uh, heads of the Illuminati and told them these uh, wild tales of the Illuminati treasures he saw in Frankfurt, how they were getting uh, millions of gold coins from Freemasons all over the world uh, to further their devious plots. And uh, you know, he, his, his sentence was commuted to life, and he did die in a Vatican prison. Yeah, no, I but, think. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say it's. Uh, I think they called it the well. So, it was. Um, it was a. It was a prison that. I mean, if, <laughs> I mean, maybe the irony wasn't lost on him, but it, there was just one window where you, where you could look out uh, at the, the yeah. nearest church. But it was. It was called the well because they the prison the prison officers could see him. That they, they, but not vice versa. That's because I, I, they say because he was frightened that he was going to hypnotize them and then get away but um i suppose there's that connection though with the um illuminati and vice up and and cagalistro and also the egyptian masonry that he was involved with and oh yeah there i mean there i mean again we're, we're talking about things on the fringe and the people people even if uh warring factions would intermingle fairly freely and there were a number of Ex-Illuminati. I mean, the order was suppressed in uh, 1787. I mean, you could say it maybe uh, lingered on until 1790, but then in uh, pre-revolutionary France, uh, certain members, uh, Bode, who was a later member who really tried to get vice help to, uh, to renew the order, the uh, there are several Illuminati that went to France and may or may not have had contact with people like Mirabeau, who were uh, fairly prominent political figures who were involved with in the early stages of the uh, French Revolution. So once these connections were seen, uh, People like Robeson and Baruel leaned on them heavily to show that the Illuminati, far from being destroyed, were uh, firmly ensconced in power in France and that they were the ones responsible hmm, for what happened. So, I mean, no, we're about like nine years deep into the Illuminati and everything seems to be going fairly well. Um, but what happens? What happens? Like, the, it. If the sort of walls come tumbling down, don't they, for the order? And uh, could you go into like the the eventual downfall of the Illuminati? Yes, and again, um, it's as I said, it's helps uh, character flaws that really led to this is that uh, he mortally offended a lower-ranking member, treated him rather shabbily, and. This member who had uh, connections with some minor nobility was able to gain the ear of uh, Princess Clementina, who was the Dowager Duchess of, uh, she was a cousin, I believe, of the Elector Count, and would have been the wife of his predecessor if he'd lived. And uh, this Illuminati member 
who was accompanied by several other Illuminati members who were equally upset with Weishaupt, uh, visited the Duchess and told her how this secret society was planning to undermine her cousin's rule and destroy the church and that already they had uh, filled positions of power in the courts and in the schools and the administration itself with their members so that they could uh, subvert the electorate on a word from their leader, Adam Weishaupt. And it took some time because the elector didn't really take it seriously. But once he realized that this was a, a, a potential threat and she emphasized her belief that they were uh, conniving with the Austrians to, to make the electorate part of the Austrian Hungarian empire and other things. He decided he would deal with it, and his first act was to ban all secret societies within the borders of Bavaria. The Illuminati complied, but they would they pushed loopholes. So their detractors, because this also gave more substance to the myth of the Illuminati that the the orders whose members they had been poaching knew there was this other order out there, but they weren't quite sure who was in it or who was leading it. And now that uh, word was leaking out about the Illuminati, the Rosicrucians and other orders were attacking them as well. And by attempting to mount their defense, the Illuminati just continue to uh, expose themselves to more persecution from the uh, government of Bavaria. And it wasn't it, was it the Vatican that had, was it the, the police that had sort of dossiers on, started to build basically dossiers on each member, didn't they? You're right. And uh, one of the chief agents for the campaign against the Illuminati and secret societies in general, because the Freemasons were equally uh, suspect to him was the uh, Father Frank, who was the uh, elector's personal confessor. So he took, he exaggerated every misdemeanor into a huge felony and told the uh, elector that the Illuminati were all masters of poison and they had no qualms whatsoever of using poison to achieve their aims and removing those who would stand in their way. It almost sounds like the the persecution of the Templars, doesn't it? You know, later where the, the one kind of rogue element would just create these incredible myths and uh, use that. As no, a, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's yeah. really, it's really, there's really a, a, a parallel mm. to be drawn there. Yeah. So, um, Eventually, Weishaupt is exiled, I believe. Yeah, he fled. Uh, and he ended up in Gotha, uh, with, that was uh, ruled by uh, Duke Ernst, who was actually a member of the Illuminati. Uh, and it was the house, wasn't uh, Saxe-Coburg-Gotha then, but it was the house that eventually became 
Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, which is what the House of Windsor was before 1917. In fact, I think he was the grandfather of uh, Albert, who married Victoria. Yeah. And that's one so of, you have if if you want to make conspiracies, you yeah. Can, you, <laughs> so I was about to say, yeah, that's like a that's a classic, isn't it? That's a, <laughs> I can see uh, David Ike taking notes right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people think that um, the kind of legend and the kind of conspiracy theories around the Illuminati started more recently, but actually, they started much earlier than people expected and i mean the one that you one of the ones in the book that's mentioned is the um 1801 kind of police legend the austrian um investigation into the illuminati can you talk about that because i found that particularly interesting well yeah that was uh i mean there was a that and also the uh, french Mm. police also were concocted a, a a legend of the illuminati but the uh, Vienna was especially concerned with the events in uh, Paris and in France, and because of the, you know, the the definitive involvement, there was a Illuminati lodge not only in uh, Vienna itself, but in uh, Budapest and in Prague, which were both parts of the empire. They felt that they were especially vulnerable that, you know, and at this time people were open, receptive to the idea that what the Illuminati failed to do in Bavaria, because they were exposed, they succeeded to do in France. So it was the Bavarians that had insinuated themselves into the courts, into the uh, ruling apparatus, into all the sections of society had gone on and not been exposed as such, they were able to complete their task. Whereas in Bavaria, they had been exposed in time so that they were, their their machinations didn't bear fruit. So the, Vienna was, was very uh, nervous, or the police were given uh, access to the documents that they had been able to to seize from various secret societies there. Plus, at that time, the uh, Bavarians had allowed the publication of all of Weishaupt's writings, all these order things, and these, these uh, had been quickly published throughout uh, the German-speaking world. That's interesting. So, what I mean, this is a bit of a broad question, but why, over all other groups, do you think that it's the Illuminati that have kind of persisted as this kind of uh, bogeyman, as it were, of, of uh, you know, of conspiracy law? Well, it's 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 odd because you know they were. The values they're preaching are are fairly, I mean, they're benign. You know, they're they're uh, the, the rights of man, the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, all these various documents of from the late 18th century are all 
echoing these same principles, these same ideas of just, you know, individual freedom and the right of an individual to, to pursue his own path without uh, unnecessary oppression by church or state. But for some reason, the Illuminati have been turned into like these, uh, uh, I mean, one of the things I hear now is the Davos uh, connection, Swab, and people like that. And there are similarities. I mean, the, the, the World Economic Forum, Forum uh, I think his name is Swab, talks about getting his people placed in governments throughout the world. So that does echo what the Illuminati were seeking to do, but I don't know if the uh, philosophical principles are the same. Yeah, I mean, in, in, as part of my preparation for this evening and talking to you, Mr. Graham, I was I I sort of just was curious to see what um, so I, I sort of glanced at uh, the very seminal uh, part work, uh, Man, Myth, and Magic, which was from the seventy one, I think. What it had to say about the um, Adam lies up, and uh, in the first paragraph, it talks about you know every kind of every species of conspiracy being sort of laid at the feet of the Illuminati, and that was in 1971. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, it, it, it went on. It, there was none of the sort of uh, the, the popular sort of uh, fever dream of the conspiracy with. Uh, you know, sort of, um, sort of reptilian queens from space and all this, <laughs> and right. so on. There was nothing. There was nothing of that in it. I suppose it takes on the flavour of its time, and for some strange reason, the anxieties of a of 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 the time are taking on that shape. No, and I think you know the Bavaria of that time, being so backwards, played a part in their emphasis on these ideals that were not considered so dangerous in the rest of what's now Germany. But in France, these ideas were still uh, considered suspect. I mean, Voltaire, uh, there were plenty of uh, Montesquieu, Voltaire philosophers and uh, political figures who were also speaking in favor of, of uh, giving the individual freedom that was not available in the ancien regime, the, the monarchy of France. But for, somehow, for some reason, the Illuminati seemed to have captured the imagination more than anyone else. It's, uh, all other causes are secondary. And it's, I think it's the idea that they were able to actually place their members in positions where they could wield influence. When uh, their detractors first started attacking them after uh, the elector's first decree, Weishaupt challenged them to come out of this, the shadows to speak their slander so that honest men could, could deal with them as they should. And they replied, we wouldn't dare because you control the courts and they named all the Illuminati members that were in the superior court, the law courts, the civil courts. The... So there's, you know, I think the fact that the Illuminati were successful in Bavaria to a certain extent 
probably is what really enabled them to to hold on to the imagination to the extent that they have. I think the fact that they added that kind of more Masonic structure um, also allowed conspiracy theorists to kind of transpose the Illuminati onto Freemasonry itself. Um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, because, you know, I, I mean, the most obvious person to me um, to do that was William Cooper, the conspiracy theorist. Um, he's big in the 90s, as they say, <laughs> um, because it, I think he was killed, actually, wasn't he? Um, outside of his house but um but he was very um adamant that uh, there was a you know uh, that the the masons had a, a kind of secret um set of degrees that were actually the illuminati degrees and you know it's it, it, there's a great kind of um you know almost you know it, it would make great fiction if it <laughs> do you know what i mean it, it's an interesting um it's just interesting how it's kind of how it kind of morphs and sort of you know is grows and changes depending on which conspiracy theorist uh gets their hands on the on the law right and and you know the the illuminati were was using the structure of uh masonry to build its own order and they had joined masonic lodges that they turned to their own ends but when they were exposed the masons were probably the loudest of their detractors for these uh, godless men trying to profane the Christian values of real Masons. And I think Ed, Ro uh, what's his name, Robeson, who was the professor of natural law at Edinburgh, who wrote, I think, the first book uh, describing how Masons and uh, the Illuminati and reading societies had were responsible for the French Revolution. He actually made an exception for English Masons, and he was made it known to his readers that it was only the uh, the perversions of Masonry in France and Germany and places like that that he was uh, accusing. Sort of Grand Orient Masonry, I think they called it, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of interesting you think that groups like the golden dawn would have got more more grief because you know obviously they're a bit more uh i don't know they especially if you know from a christian point of view they seem to be far more um yeah i think you know far more esoteric you know and far more um but yet somehow they seem to have uh dodged a bullet as it were with i mean the conspiracy theorists mentioned them but they're in no way you know, I mean, they're also a fairly successful group. You know, they kind of reshaped the, the you know, the, uh, the the modern esoteric world. You know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're fairly significant, yet the conspiracy theorists tend to, you know, I, I can think of one conspiracy theorist actually called Freeman, I think his name is that. But um, he, you know, seems to batter on the uh, the doors of the Golden Dawn. But other than that, you know, they, they don't seem to have really had that same whipping <laughs> that the Illuminati have. And uh, yeah, I, I wonder I wonder why. Well, um, maybe it's because they still have, uh, you know, their structure still intact. I think, was it David Griffin that took over? Mm, yeah. And the, uh, is it the Chicoros uh, or Ciceros? I think they they also, yeah. But yeah, it's, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I guess the, the comparison there is that they're also, uh, you know, a group of uh, of Freemasons essentially that you know um, started a 
a sort of sideline group, you know, outside of Freemasonry, and yet they, right. yet they, they seem to be like showered with praise, whereas the Illuminati are seen as this dirty word. It's kind of interesting. I suppose as as well, um, actually, the, the the notion of a sleeping agent in very similar to the Hashashins. I mean, mm-hmm. that, uh, that I suppose that uh, that's that's a very sort of paranoid. Mm, so that, that's true. that's going to provoke paranoia, and um, and, uh, and that brings us back to sort of Wasserman and his work. Funny enough, doesn't it? Right. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So, just a fun final question: Is do you believe there is a modern Illuminati? Well, I know there are groups calling themselves the Illuminati. I don't think they're uh, descendants of the Bavarian group, and I do think that as a as a myth, it has a certain validity. It expresses something that you know, as symbols do, uh, is able to encapsulate a kind of uh, reality that people sense but can't really articulate. So I think in a world where most people feel disempowered, the idea that there are people pulling the strings, it's not just chaos, <laughs> uh, offers some sort of comfort. <laughs> yeah, it's like religion, isn't it? It's this, It kind of fulfills the same... Uh, so, like you say, it's it kind of explains chaos away, doesn't it? In the same way that religion, you know, if something terrible happens, it's God's will. Whereas, if uh, right. in the conspiracy fit sphere, it, it you know, it, it's the it's the Illuminati. It's their fault, you know. It's it kind of provides, like you say, that kind of uh, that comfort or that explanation for for the unknown and uh, gives people, yeah, it's like a security blanket. Yeah, I I, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean. I've heard, uh, you know, people who do not agree with, you know, who believe that the Illuminati uh, just faked their death and will go at great length and name lots of names and provide this uh, unbroken uh, line of descent from Freemasons to the anti-Masons and America in the 1930s, uh, this group, the Carbonari, and it just goes on and on. And um, I haven't found that in my reading of certain of these documents, but uh, there are people that are fully convinced that the Illuminati have been pulling the strings since uh, since the French Revolution. But uh, knowing the principles of the Illuminati, I would say that they did a 180 from what they profess to believe, if that's the case. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, John. If um, if people want to pick up, uh, so it's a book you translated, uh, but right. it's, it's called The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society, originally by René Le Forester um and translate it's an excellent book um it, it, it's i would i would challenge anyone to, to to say that this is not the it it is not i can't even say it myself <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I would I'll start again I, I would challenge anybody to say this is this is not the, the definitive text i i can't see how it you know with all the you know the rich 
minutiae of it all and the, 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 the it, i don't see how they, they could be a better book on the subject it is the, mm. and uh, you you've you've performed a great work by making it available to us well Graham. thank you no i i enjoy it i mean i found it it's it was challenging but well worth it yeah it's excellent so what's next what what what's your uh have you got any more projects coming up um outside of your duties at inner traditions well uh i translated i mean one book i'm very interested in uh it's being edited now is uh it wasn't actually hasn't even been published it was a uh dissertation by a uh a french scholar who's a expert in uh anthropology scandinavian anthropology and uh history and it's about the true history of greenland which is i had no idea <laughs> it's really amazing it totally the you know offers archaeological evidence that the vikings didn't just stay in greenland or one little pit stop in vinland but their presence could be found all the way to hudson bay and all the way down into uh what's now the United States and New England. And, you know, places like Nuremberg aren't just like some map makers, you know, drunken fantasy, but were actual places. Hmm. That sounds, that sounds like an interesting read. Definitely. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for giving us some of your time. And thanks to Manzanita in the traditions for hooking yeah. us up. Well, thanks. And, uh, me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, hopefully we'll have you on again at some point in the future. Well, that'd be great. I'd look forward to it. And we are back. So how was that for you, sir? An excellent commentary on, on the experience of reading the book, actually. I mean, like I say, there's so much in it. So It's so rich. And you could go on reading and reading it, and um, hopefully that will wet, wet, wet people's appetites uh, for the, the feast that awaits them if they are so inclined to, to read the book. And I do recommend you get it. It's, uh, <clears throat> as I said in the um, interview, it was released recently by Inner Traditions, who are fast becoming one of our favourite publishers, I think, aren't they? They're, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they, they, this is, you know, this is the definitive text, so... I, I I sincerely believe that, um, and I can't see how it, they, you know they, they've set the bar really high here for for a long time to come, and and these traditions should be you know receive all the due respect in that regard. I think, like I was saying earlier in the intro, I think it might be interesting if you are cons you know interested in conspiracy theories, have a read of this book because it it kind of rewrites. Well, you know, it sets in place or, you know, resets the truth, as it were, on what actually went down with the Illuminati, um, you know, because it's been so just, I guess this text is, hasn't really been available before to people. Mm. So a lot of conspiracy theory fact or law has been based on perhaps inaccurate information, whereas this feels like Mark says the, the, the definitive text on, on the matter. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's definitely a... Um, you know, I would recommend it to anyone that's interested in a the history of Western esotericism, because mm. clearly you see the uh, the framework for, like we say in the in the interview, that it's the framework for many of current orders. Um, mm. But also, it's 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 
it's just a really good insight into the actual Illuminati, isn't it? I mean, it's it's yeah, and uh, and there's a sort of iron, irony, irony upon irony because of, of course there are conspiracies in the book because the the point of the Illuminati was to overthrow the sort of a former Jesuit uh, sort of uh, system and uh, and the undue influence that they felt toxic and pernicious undue influence that they felt it had on on people's lives and the the culture of the time. Mm. So um so there are there are, you know what you want conspiracy theories well there's some in there. But uh but they they're not the usual uh smorgasbord of sort of the sort of conspiracy sphere sort of marketplace. Mm. But yeah there's like fifty two varieties of more and more fever dreamed sort of um paranoia. One thing I thought was I was gonna bring it up in the interview but I forgot to to mention it, it was Really, when you look at the Illuminati's philosophy, it's very libertarian, isn't it? And when yeah. you look, and when you look at a lot of modern conspiracy theorists, they're also incredibly libertarian. So, in a way, the irony—another irony—is that the actual philosophy of the Illuminati lines up quite neatly with a lot of the kind of more, you know, libertarian conspiracy theorists that that, that yeah. seem to, you know, despise them. <laughs> I fully suggest, actually, if you're interested in marketing a new a new brand of conspiracy theory you could actually sort of redeem the illuminati and and then say well actually you know you know what they had a, they they were right and uh, it's a pity we're not being ruled by them because uh, you know they would make the world a far more uh, rational place i mean that the word illuminati and the the enlightenment uh, i mean they they're very closely connected and uh, and in a funny way actually the, the 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 enlightenment has become a bit of a dirty word among some quarters, which the libertarians, and I'm sympathetic with them in this regard, um, uh, and both them and me have, have uh, little patience with. So there we are. So there's an invite. There's an invite for a whole new strain. I might have given birth to something here. <laughs> you, these, this might be the pangs of a new, the birth pangs of a new. Um, Conspiratorial uh, meme, so a new, a new strand of conspiracy. Theory. Yeah, yeah. to add to the many thousands. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you want to keep up with us and do come and say hi, we are on YouTube at as sitting now, Instagram as sitting now, uh, Twitter as sitting now. But do join us. We're we're coming very close to one thousand subscribers on YouTube, which I know, in the grand scheme of things, is a very small thing. But it's you know it's a, it's a nice uh, milestone for us to. You know, reach uh, you know a thousand subscribers. That's kind of pretty cool. We're getting too close to the truth, Kane. Exactly. We'll be uh, we'll suddenly vanish. <laughs> anyway, we shall see you next time. <laughs>